Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast. I hope you will take the communion cup that you have. If you didn't get one, you can grab one now at the table. Now, I'd invite you for a second just just to hold it, just to take it and, and hold it in your hand for a moment. We're going we're gonna to use this today in this service. And it can be just a ritual. It can be something we just go through and do because we do it once a month. Or it can become something that is powerful and dynamic and even life-changing. And so hopefully from t- today from God's Word, we'll learn how to make it more like the second than the first. So today we're continuing our series in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 42 to 47. We will see the breaking of bread. The verse, our key verse, is verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, the context, of course, is Acts chapter 2 has happened. Pentecost, it's the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people are saved. They're baptized. And now we start to learn about what the early church life is like. And we're taking four weeks to examine one of those elements each week. You'll notice, I guess, on your outline that it starts with number three. <laughs> That's not a mistake. That's not a autocorrect from word or something in the numbering. That's because we've already covered in the last two weeks devotion to sound doctrine, devotion to fellowship, and now we learn that another characteristic of dynamic church life is devotion to worship. Devotion to worship. Now, before we look into that text, let me mention some biblical elements of corporate worship that we are not covering today. (laughs) The subject of worship is so huge. There's so much that could be said about it. It involves so many different things. And there are many expressions of worship in the Bible. And we're not going to talk about these today. Reading of scripture, singing, kneeling, bowing, clapping, Raising hands, praying, giving money, confession of sin, a lifestyle that, or lifestyle that worships. All of those are good, valid, biblical expressions of worship. Today we're going to hone in on the two that are mentioned in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. And even among those two, we're going to spend most of the time with one of them. 
But what we're going to be doing is we are going to be examining the intense worship of a people. And while we'll be honing in on the breaking of bread, in that we will see how it was worship and what it means to worship. And so then we can learn from this and then we can apply it whenever we break bread. We also can apply it when we are doing these other things that are parts of corporate worship as well. So there it is. There's the two expressions in this passage uh, that are worship. The breaking of bread and then verse 47, praising God. So two indications of a worshiping church. The first one is regularly remembering Jesus' sacrifice through the Lord's Supper. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, this could just refer to the fact that they ate meals together a lot. We see that in the passage. We see that they later, that they did that, that they regularly ate in each other's homes. And that's mentioned a lot in Acts. But the the construction is a little bit different here. It has the word the. Now, that in English, that's not that big a deal. It is a big deal in the original language. It's the breaking of bread. In other words, it gives the clear impression that this is referring to what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. They had regular times of breaking bread. Now, in some ways, it's almost uh, a false uh, separation because it happened in the first century, often in the context of their regular meals at home. I don't think it would have been unusual at all for every time uh, uh, families met together to break bread together, they remembered, oh, remember when Jesus broke bread? Let's remember him when, when we do it. I think it was that common for them. But there were also special seasons and special places of doing it. So to understand communion, all of you, I'm sure, have taken communion. And some have taken communion many times. What does it mean? What's involved with breaking bread? What does it do? Well, we have to go back to Luke chapter 22 when Jesus instituted the breaking of bread at the Last Supper. So let's look at that passage. And in that passage, there are several truths about communion that are very important. And this early church, they got it. Because remember, they, they got the apostles' teaching. What Jesus taught to the apostles, the apostles turn around and taught to them. First of all, communion looks back to the crucifixion like Passover looked back to the Exodus. Beginning in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which... The Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Now, Passover was a major Jewish festival that was held in the spring to commemorate maybe the most important event in the life of the history of Israel. After 400 years of bondage and slavery, to Egypt. God miraculously rescued his people, Israel, 
delivered them through the Red Sea into the, towards the land that he had promised. And Passover was instituted right at that time and it was carried on to follow it and remember it. And it became the focal point of Israel's history and worship. It wasn't something that just happened one time and that was it. But all through the centuries, as Israel worshipped, Israel, God's people, always looked back to the Exodus. They always looked back to, ex- to the Passover. Now, what did they do on Passover? Well, they would, they would sacrifice a lamb, they would slay a lamb, and they would put its blood on the door frames and the lentils of the doors because the idea was, you remember what happened Remember Charlton Heston in Ten Commandments when you watched that movie? <laughs> Hopefully, or when you read it in Scripture. <laughs> Exodus chapter 12. The last, the night that they had their very last meal in Egypt, Exodus 12, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Now, fast forward to New Testament times. So this happened all through the Old Testament. They constantly uh, remembered the Passover, looking back to that great Exodus event, that great way that God redeemed them and God created a people. Up until the year AD 70, 40 years after Jesus, when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple, Jewish people, thousands of Jewish peoples, would stream into Jerusalem for the Passover. It was difficult to find a place to observe it. So many people were there for this festival. And some of them would do it in private homes, and some of them might rent a special room for it. Jerusalem was a beehive of activity during this time. It was the Passover season. At 3 o'clock, sacrifices would begin in the temple. And the evening meal would would be uh, prepared in a home or, again, in a special room. And the, the, the participants would dress in these festive white uh, clothing. And there were symbolic elements involved. The roasted lamb without the legs broken. The bitter herbs. The unleavened bread. The raw vegetable di- dipped into a tart liquid. And four cups of wine were consumed at different times to symbolize joy. And the son would ask the father... Why is this night different from all other nights? And then the father would give his son a summary of how God had delivered Israel. Now, here is what is so interesting. God is sovereign, right? God can plan anything he wants to plan. He could have done it any way. When did he send Jesus into Jerusalem to die? It was at Passover. And they were eating the Passover meal. The meal that looked back to the amazing deliverance that God had given 
That's when God sovereignly ordained Jesus to do it. And the reason why is Jesus is now pictured as our Passover lamb. In fact, Paul said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So communion, this last supper, now the Lord's Supper for us, it, it looks back to the crucifixion just like Passover looked back to the Exodus. So I would picture it this way. If we think about worship in the Old Testament and worship in the New Testament, Here's what Old Testament worship was like. It centered around the Passover. And the Passover always pointed back to the Exodus. And in the same way that the Old Testament does did that, now the New Testament, we have the Lord's Supper, and it looks back to the crucifixion. There's, there's, there's a one-for-one parallel. That marked Old Testament worship. And so the breaking of bread is a key part of New Testament worship. And it looks back to the crucifixion. Well, second thing that we learn about communion from this passage is that communion looks forward. Not only does it look back, it looks forward to ultimate fulfillment in God's kingdom. Verse 14 When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. With desire I have desired, it reads in the original. It's repeated for emphasis. There's deep emotion here on Jesus' part. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God, in the rule of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So this meal is a turning point. This meal is the turning point between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You say, well, when did the Old Testament end and when did the New Testament start? And you naturally think, oh, well, Matthew 1.1, that's the first one. Think about it historically as Jesus' ministry comes under the Old Covenant. He comes as a Jewish person under the law to redeem those under the law, Galatians says. And he gets to this spot... And now he says, I am going to institute something new. <laughs> I am going to institute. I, and I, I can't wait until it gets fulfilled. So communion is always looking forward to its ultimate fulfillment. The third thing is the bread, the wafer. This is a small, thin piece of bread. This is unleavened. You're, you're really close to the Passover here. This is unleavened bread, I think. <laughs> That's what Nikki told me. I'm ordering unleavened bread. Okay, unleavened. The bread symbolizes 
Jesus' broken body that saves us. Verse 19, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's interesting that that word gave thanks. Some of you might be from more high church backgrounds, or at least you're familiar with it. Have you ever heard it called the Eucharist? You wonder where that comes from? Well, the Greek word eucharisteo is to give thanks. Jesus gave thanks. And that's, that's where this comes from. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, the word remember, the concept of remember, we're called to remember 166 times in the Bible. It's very important that we are not a forgetful people. That we do not forget what God has done to save us, what God has done to redeem us, what God has done to work in our lives. And it all happened on the cross. And when every time we take this bread, we're remembering that. We're remembering that. The next thing, what about the cup? The cup symbolizes Jesus' blood that establishes the new covenant. Verse 20, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, remember I said there were four cups of wine in the original Passover feast. This is probably the third uh, of the fourth cups that came with the Passover meal. It was known as the cup of redemption. And there are two very, very important things. When, what does it mean that we're now in the new covenant? It doesn't mean just the fact that, well, we don't live in the Old Testament anymore. There's, there's a huge significance to the concept of new covenant, and it centers around two key elements. And the first one is forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Put yourself in their place at that time. They have a written law. That's what they have. They have the law of Moses. They have it there. It was external. Their corporate worship of God was done through representatives. None of them could do what you do today. They couldn't march into the place of worship, the march of corporate, place of corporate worship themselves. They couldn't go into the temple and say, oh, I want to go in the Holy of Holies because I really want to be really close to God. No, you remember once a year, one man, the high priest, would go in, into the Holy of Holies. The, the priests always were the mediators between them and God. But look what Jeremiah said back in the Old Testament. The time is coming, declares the Lord in Jeremiah 31, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. What's that new covenant going to be like? Well, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. You remember God gave Moses the covenant <laughs> and he wrote the Ten Commandments and the people immediately were, while Moses was up on the mountain, they were already breaking the commandments. Verse 33. This is the covenant 
I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No long will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Forgiveness is at the very heart of the new covenant. William Cowper was an 18th century poet who had a very troubled childhood. His mother died when he was six years old and he was put in a boarding house. And unfortunately, in those days, um, that meant... Uh, Bad things. He actually was put in a, a private asylum. I mean, they, they were often mistreated. There, he was small of stature. He was bullied. He was beaten. It just became a very bad experience for him. In fact, even as he grew up and he became a lawyer, he always struggled. And, and there were at least two times when he came close to committing suicide. So... At age 25, I'm sorry, I think I said it wrong. He went to the boarding house first. At age 25, he was put in the private asylum, which again in those days sometimes meant worse treatment. But he had a godly doctor who not only ministered to him psychologically, but introduced him to the love and grace of Jesus Christ and talked to him about the forgiveness of his sins. And Cowper, he was disturbed, he was distressed. And he would cry out, my sin, my sin. Oh, for some fountain to cleanse me from my sin. And one day, he sat down and he saw a Bible And he opened his Bible to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. And listen to what Cowper himself wrote about that. He said, immediately I received strength to believe and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone on me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon in his blood and the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. And Cowper went on to write many Christian songs, including there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That's the new covenant. That's what God does for us through Christ. It is forgiveness of sin. 
but it's even more. <laughs> it's We are not only forgiven of our sin in the new covenant, but we are empowered to live for God. God, as part of the new covenant, sends his Holy Spirit to live in us. I don't have the verses on the screen, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 to 8, you might want to write that down. Paul said, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And he says, he compares it with the old covenant. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, that's, that's the old covenant through Moses, If it had so much glory that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses, how much or will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So you see, our sins are forgiven at the cross, but also we are empowered. The Holy Spirit at salvation comes to live in us and we are empowered to live for him. Well, there's one more thing on your outline about communion. It's not from this passage. We won't turn to it. I'm only going to put a couple of the verses up, and that's Paul's explanation of communion in 1 Corinthians 11. It reinforces the unity believers have with Christ and each other. Communion in the first church was good, but it was... Already at Corinth, it was getting messed up. Because they were coming in for the meal, but some of them just took it to be just a meal and they were hungry. And some would just eat and not wait for this one and eat and this, this. And Paul says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. It wasn't just that they ate at different times, but there were fundamental divisions between them. And Paul talks about them. He sets this passage up and says, wait for each other and be united with each other. Because as we're partaking in communion, we're one family, we're one body, and there is unity. And he says, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Communion is something we do together. We don't just do it alone. It's not just something that you, three o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, decide, I want to remember the Lord's death. Hopefully you will remember the Lord's death at that point. But there is something special about the body of Christ together remembering. It symbolizes our unity And of course, I I didn't mention it. I didn't put it on the outline. We also know that communion is a chance to examine ourselves. Paul talked about that in this passage. Don't take it in an unworthy manner. It's not about whether we're worthy. None of us are worthy. But if you take it in an unworthy manner, if you rush into communion, if you don't think anything about it, if it's just a ritual, if there's division between you and a brother or sister and you don't get that right, you, you really shouldn't take communion if there's a problem between you and someone else. If you've offended somebody, if you've sinned against them, you, you should make it right. If there's sin between you and the Lord, you should make it right. It's a chance to examine yourself. So 
here's the essence of worship. Some of you might have thought, oh, I thought this message was going to be about worship. This is turning out to be a message about communion. Yes. <laughs> it's a both and. The essence of worship is making Jesus central in our lives and gatherings. That's what worship is. The essence of worship is not singing. It's not clapping. It's not even reading scripture or praying. It's making Jesus central. Now, all of those expressions that are biblical expressions and there are others, that, those are part of worship. But it's, where, where, where do, where, what's the heart of worship? What, what is it really fundamentally about? It's about making Jesus central. And so we live a life of worship that makes Jesus central. And then when we come together, and whether we're singing or praying or greeting or taking communion, it's about remembering Jesus and making him central. This is the heart. So remember, that I said there are two indications of a worshiping church in this passage. The first one is regularly remembering Jesus' sacrifice through the Lord's Supper. And the second one is continuously Worshiping and meeting God together. Verse 46 and 47. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God. And enjoying the favor of all the people. So they worshiped both formally and informally. It was in the temple courts and it was in homes. It was both joyful and reverent. And they were constantly praising God. It just, it was part of their life, praising God. They were living lifestyles of worship. They were, they were constantly praising God. You know, nobody had to work it up. Oh, well, let's come to our worship gathering. Let's come to our church service and then hopefully they'll sing the songs I like or, or they'll say the right words and it'll stir me up. No, this was overflow. This was worship all the time for them. It happened in their homes, it happened as they, in their jobs, as they walked, as they lived, as they worked, and when they came together. And that is the same that's true for us. Worship is the overflow of a life. So when God builds his church, it is devoted to worship. When God builds his church, it is devoted to worship. Look, two ways to apply this truth. The first one is to receive Christ. If you have not done that, today you have been shown what he did for you by dying. And we urge you to receive him. And the second way is to remember and worship Christ daily and as a church. You prepare for worship. You prepare for worship all week long. Our corporate worship on Sunday is vastly influenced by how all of us worship all week long. And we will evaluate. We will keep evaluating. What can we do to help encourage people to worship? And what can we do towards communion? Are we taking it often enough? Well, let me close with some numbers. 3,000... They all relate to bread, 3,975. That's the number of feet of the largest, the longest loaf of bread in the world. 
3,975 feet. It was made at a baker's party in Portugal in 2005. Dan Martin, you traveled to Portugal, I believe. Did you have a part of that bread? You did not? Well, when it was sliced, it fed over 15,000 people. Seventeen seventy seven. That was the year that wheat was first planted as a hobby crop in the United States. Nineteen twenty eight. That was the year that pre sliced bread was invented in Missouri after being worked on for sixteen years. Twelve point six. That's the grams of protein in a three and a half ounce serving of hard red winter wheat. It's almost equal to the grams of protein in the same serving of soybeans. Ten. That's the years a family of four could live off the bread produced by one acre of wheat. Six. The number of wheat classifications. Hard red winter, hard red spring, soft red winter, hard, hard white, and soft white. And one. One. A single loaf of bread when it's taken at communion is a powerful symbol of our salvation and Christian unity. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. When God builds his church, it is devoted to worship. Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. 